holy shit, something seems broken. The idea is that Bitcoin might offer a solution. Let's figure out how Bitcoin works now. And then I started to put the puzzle pieces together of Bitcoin and figure out how Bitcoin works. And I think from how Bitcoin works derived exactly what it was and what it was trying to achieve, because at every level of Bitcoin's engineering is its purpose. You can't take an aspect of the code or of the protocol or of the white paper or of any of it and explain it without in being able to then infer some of the purpose of Bitcoin. Hello and welcome to Bitcoin with Jake. This is a podcast all about people's personal journeys to Bitcoin. I wanted to know more about the people converging on this new form of money. Why do they see value in it? What skills enable their understanding? How is it changing their lives? If you're a founder looking for funding or an investor looking to make investments, then please reach out as I develop my network in the space. Do me a favor and chuck us a five-star rating on whichever app you're using to listen or a like if you're watching it somewhere. As insignificant as this may seem, they help a startup project like this hugely. Lastly, if you have any questions at all, please just reach out. The easiest place to find me is on Twitter at Jake E.S. Woodhouse. Now, I'd like to take a quick moment to talk about our sponsor. Fast Bitcoins are a Bitcoin exchange who you should definitely take a look at next time you're thinking of making a Bitcoin purchase. They're a great team, which for me is always the key to due diligence, whilst their product has a ton of features useful to every Bitcoiner. Check out my episodes with Danny Brewster, the founder CEO, and Nathan Smith, the chief compliance officer, to learn more about the people behind the brand. Thank you to Fast Bitcoins for sponsoring the show. Now, on to today's episode. Today, I'm speaking with Angelo. Hey, Angelo, how are you? I'm doing good, man. How's it going? I'm very good, thank you. So how do I say your surname? Morgan Summers? That's correct, yeah. Bingo. All right. Well, let's start here. I've just finished your book, Do Bitcoin. Absolutely excellent read. I was super impressed. Shout out to Nathan Smith for putting us in touch from Fast Bitcoins. It's really great to get you on, and I'm excited to hear about how you ended up becoming a Bitcoin author, essentially. So we'll kick off with the question I ask everyone each time, which is, where were you and what were you doing when you heard about Bitcoin first? I was sat on the dining table of my dad's house. This could be, you know, you can invent memories, right? So this could be completely invented, but the way that I remember <laughs> it, I was, very young. I was sat in the dining room or somewhere. Yeah, so I think I was sat at the table. Dad comes in. Hey, I've been reading this gold newsletter. And at the bottom, they mentioned this thing called Ethereum. Have you heard about it? <clears throat> and I was like, Nope, but he wanted me to look into it to try and get a better understanding for himself. So obviously you can't learn about it without learning about Bitcoin. So later that evening, it was swiftly on to um, trying to understand what the hell Bitcoin is and having YouTube videos telling me that people solve math problems, but the result of the math problem isn't important, but the problem itself and solving it is. And I was like, what the fuck are you all talking about? But it piqued my interest a lot. So from there, it was kind of like naturally a lot of learning ensued. And so roughly, roughly when was That was, I think it was February or March of 2016. Okay. So roughly six and a half years ago. Crikey. It doesn't feel real, does it? It goes so quick. Wow. Okay. And, and so all those years ago, how old were you at the time and what were you doing around that period of your life? And did you ever imagine that, you know, six and a half years later, you'd be publishing a big? No, no. When you put it like that, yeah, it's, it's not something that I would have predicted at all, but so 
at that period of my life, that was, you know, the movie Fight Club at the end of the, the film when he says, you met me at a really weird period of my life. That was sort of where I was at at that point, because I was 13 years old. I left school about a year ago and spent about a year trying to basically plan the rest of my life, having not really much clue about how to go about doing that or what I should value in terms of results that I wanted to see for my life. And I really just sort of building it all from the ground up because in the, I'm not sure how many years exactly, so from or it would have been from the nine years prior to that at school, questions like that have never come up once. You're never asked, you know, much about what you wanted to do or, or what you valued from life or what you wanted to get from it or what you wanted to experience or anything like that. So I think after leaving, it was quite a an instant, like, it sort of took off the horse blinders in a way of perspective and opened it a lot because when you're in school, it's like, okay, <clears throat> what do I want to do today? And this is how the line of thought would go. What I want to do today is not piss off any of my teachers because that will make the rest of the year worse. I want to learn this thing properly so that when I do well on the test, my parents are happy and the teachers don't start ostracizing me or whatever. And the reason that I want the tests to do well is because, well, it's something to do with getting better tests later on. And then when you get those, you do well on those tests and you take more tests after that. And it's just sort of the better you do now, the better you do later sort of thing. But you don't really understand. And so that was sort of how the line of thought goes when you're in school. And I quickly found out that when you leave school, you think, what do I want to do today? In terms of productive efforts, not just chilling around, but what do I actually want to get done? You think, well, I want to learn because that's something I've been doing the whole time I was in school, apparently. So what do I want to learn about? Well, the reason I want to learn something is so that I'm better at doing something or providing a certain type of value to society. Okay, so what value do I want to provide to society? Well, it would probably have to satisfy some requirements for it to be like a sustainable like way of life for me going forward. So I need to understand a bit about myself. What do I like to do? What things interest me and what gets me going? And then what's actually sustainable in the sense of what's monetizable and what can I actually turn into something that, you know, doesn't leave me on the street at the end of it. So you, you, all of a sudden you go from this frame of very short term, high time preference. I need to get this done today. So no one shouts at me to very low time preference. What I do today will impact the rest of my life. And so I think I had a sort of midlife crisis around that age. So then finding out about Bitcoin, it was like quite quickly, I started to notice how many boxes are checked. And so I think that really added to the momentum behind it in terms of my motivation to learn more. But yeah, I never would have thought that I'd be writing a book about it a few years later, but here we are. Wow. Well done, mate. And so if you could rewind the clock, so you were 13 and just describe that kind of that day or that moment, perhaps when you go, fuck this, I'm not sitting in this system waiting to try and please a teacher that I don't care about. And I don't feel like I'm being myself, which I imagine is the kind of moment that you had. What was that experience like? So I'd say the experience was, it was less of an experience of realizing I didn't want to do it and more of an experience of realizing that it was possible not to, because beforehand, I think I'd brought up throughout my childhood of the idea of homeschooling a couple of times, just because I was so un like, not well suited to the education system. And it was never really taken as anything more than just the miserable ramblings of a child that's just come back from a long day at school that he's not very happy with. And so it was shut down quite quickly as you would with that sort of complaining. But it was an interesting chain of events that led to the idea of home education turning from just a utopian daydream to like an actual possibility because 
I was very into parkour and it was sort of the thing that I would look forward to at the end of the day of school because they had parkour classes. And after a while, I started to get a bit better at it. I was competing in my age bracket in Wales and there was one competition up in Bridge End in which I completely fucked up. I, I tried to jump to across these scaffolding bars but missed my footing on one of the second jumps which essentially resulted in me taking an eight-foot jump between scaffolding bars but landing with my ribcage rather than my feet and your ribcage doesn't do a very good job at absorbing impact especially at that age when you don't really have much of a ribcage it tends to just go straight to the organs so it was uh it, it was an odd experience at the time I thought I might have just broken a rib or something because it was looking different but I later find out that apparently you can have a some ribs that protrude further than others anyway. So I don't know if that was a result of the accident, but it's still like that today. But either way, I looked down and I noticed it for the first time after I'd just injured myself. But I didn't feel much pain. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm okay. So I tried to go back into the competition and do a bit more. And, you know, I did a jump and I was like, nope, something's wrong. Like it didn't feel like pain, but I felt something was like deeply wrong and it felt different to any injury I'd had because I've broken my arm before and, and had a few injuries like that. And they all, quite obvious but this one was almost just like a deep hum in the background that and the more you move the more uncomfortable that hum sort of feels in my in my side so we went home and there was a few days of just relaxing and the pain sort of only worsening it didn't get any better and it's sort of growing in its complexity of how it sensations actually were traveling through my body and stuff so I was like this isn't normal so I'm gonna probably do a bit of googling which was a very traumatizing experience if you ever google symptoms yeah dr um, google is uh, the least helpful person you can go and help to get help from yeah yeah exactly you wouldn't want to give google to a hypochondriac they would run themselves in circles but in this case it was actually like pointing at a potential problem which was my spleen uh, so i was debating between is this just the google effect or is it actually something bad and I was like, well, considering I did just take a pretty big tumble, it's probably quite bad. So I asked to go to the doctor. Straight away, the doctor was like, there's something wrong with your spleen. We're going to send you up to the bigger hospital. So we went up to the bigger hospital. Hell of an ordeal there. They all wanted to give me CAT scans, CT scan, which exposes you to like, I think it's like 40% of some of the leftover radiation that survivors of Hiroshima experience. It's a lot of radiation in a very short period of time. And with cancer in my family history, I was trying to use the publicly available Wi-Fi, which was incredibly slow to try and Google the actual risk <laughs> reward during this CAT yeah. scan. But the doctors were just telling me, you know, you've got to do it. If you go home, it, it could be bad. And I'd be like, how bad? And they'd be like, fatal. And they were doing all this like dramatizing to try and get me to do it because they wanted to cover their own ass. And it was the correct practice and protocol to follow. But at the end of the day, when I asked them what's going to change if I take the scan, they said, well, if your spleen had burst already, you'd be dead by now. So we're assuming it's not burst. We're confident it hasn't burst because you wouldn't, you wouldn't be walking. I mean, I was barely walking. I was still kind of hobbling around and stuff, but you wouldn't be alive. So I was like, okay, so what would you do then? They were like, well, we think that there might be a tear in the lining of the spleen, which is essentially the way they explained it was if you've got a piece of paper and you pull it, it's going to be hard to get across. But if there's a little tear in it and you pull mm. it a little bit, it's opened. And mm. the spleen is a massive sack of blood that fills through 80% of your body's blood supply every two hours. If there's a hole in it, all that blood leaves. That's not good. I said, well, if there is the tear, what do you do? And they said, well, we put you in an intensive care unit and we just sort of watch you, make sure it doesn't 
tear. And I was like, could anything cause it to tear beyond me falling over again? And they were like, no, no, nothing could just cause it to randomly tear with, unless it's like right hanging on by the edge. But I think that would have happened already if it was like that without you knowing to be incredibly still all the time. So I was basically like, right, they want to put me through this radiation to check the box to say they did what was right. That's fair enough, but that's a lot of radiation and it's not going to change the outcome of the situation at all. So I decided to go home. It took about two hours of like them sending on in different doctors and sending in doctors that pretended they hadn't heard that I said I was going home. So they're like, okay, can you come with me then? We're going to go and do the... And I was like, wait, no, I just said to the other doctor that I'm not doing that. So it was a whole thing. But anyway, I went home. And then leading up to the leaving school thing, it was about a month, I think, of just resting and questioning all my life decisions. And then after that, it was like time to go back to school. And I was just having like a lot of psychological resistance to that idea because I spent so much time questioning how I'd spent my time. And when you notice that it's finite and that becomes a state that you're in rather than something that might happen to you later down the line, you sort of reframe what you believe to be important and you reframe the worries in your head and they take different weights than before so when this worry might have been really important to you before when in the face of your own mortality they change quite a lot so the idea of you know pleasing the parents by staying at school or anything didn't feel important at all to me at that point I brought up the idea to my dad and after mentioning it a couple of times, he was sort of like, you know, well, if that's an actual possibility for you, if that's something you genuinely want to do, let's give it a go. And it was at that point that I was like, oh shit, this is actually possible. So a lot of back and forth, but yeah, he ended up making the decision to leave, <clears throat> submitted the resignation letter, if you will, to the headmistress, who was like, we expected there to be a fight, but she was like, oh, okay, bye. So I was like, great. And then about a week later, they were getting calls like, Angela's not turned up to school today. It's like, literally took him out of the school like a week ago. <laughs> but they hadn't even registered it or anything. They just didn't care at all. Yeah. But I was gone then and I was free. And, you know, beforehand I was like, freedom, yes. I always move towards freedom. So I thought it would be brilliant. But there was a, I, I underestimated the scary side of freedom because just like with Bitcoin custody, the best thing about Bitcoin is you own it. And the worst thing about Bitcoin is you own it. So you're responsible for it if it gets lost. Mm -hmm. Same thing happens when you're with your own time. So all of a sudden, all of this time was mine again. And I was like, shit, that's a lot of responsibility. How do I even spend it? What do I want to do? And and I guess it sort of opened my mind quite a lot, I think, as well, because I had to think bigger picture for the first time in my life, really, or it actually made sense to. So, yeah, about a year of that. And then eventually came across Ethereum and Bitcoin. It's just been rabbit hole ever since. Yeah, wow. And, and so before we go down that kind of Bitcoin rabbit hole, it's incredible to hear you articulate how you were thinking at such a young age and that, that preference towards freedom. And I've recently listened to some podcasts, people talking about conscious parenting, and I've got two little daughters. I'm in my mid-30s, so a completely different stage in my life to yourself and having to think about, well, what does school look like for my kids and what do I believe in? And... The truth is the education system 
to me at least, it's obviously highly centralized. And once you adopt Bitcoin in a meaningful way, you understand the benefits of decentralization and this concept of owning your own time and owning your own self and your thoughts and your decisions and taking responsibility and accountability for the food that you eat and the, the exercise that you do and, and how you present yourself and, you know, what businesses you get involved in, all this kind of stuff. It's a whole rabbit hole. Hence, I, you know, have this podcast and talk about it all the time. But to hear it, in a sense, before you got to Bitcoin at such a young age, it's really, really impressive. And so what you were talking through just towards the end of your explanation there about, shit, I've got all this spare time on my hands. You know, one of the things I've heard people that have homeschooled kids rather than the child themselves is like, you know, don't bring school home. So, you know, it's not about having a timetable. It's not about like having all the different GCSEs or whichever examination board you sign up for in the home. It's a completely different way of, of thinking and more of this like self-directed learning that I really like the concept of. So what did you end up doing with your time? And those questions that you asked yourself, like, how did you answer them? You know, oh, I've got all of this responsibility for my time. Did you come up with a framework or was there a kind of online learning resource that you, you jumped on board with? How did that all play out? So it was quite a process of contemplation for probably about six months where it was just, I remember saying to my dad that I felt like I was in limbo. I didn't have anything to grab onto. I just didn't, I thought I knew what life was. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're, I think this is what a lot of, ha basically what happens to people when they leave university and they're out into the, the wild and it's like, whoa, this is Who the, world, am I? the world. Yeah. Where am I? <laughs> I've been there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's that experience that everybody has. And I think I was having that at, at 13 because for the same reasons, it was no longer just thinking with the horse blinders on. It was, they were very much off and in and the peripheral vision, metaphorically speaking, was very much expanded. And you had to look at the world as it is, but you can't ignore aspects of the world because you're able to just be busy in your microcosm or your tutorial space, which is school it's kind of school's kind of like i think it primarily serves as a microcosm for the real world because it sort of takes the hierarchies transposes them into an institution it takes the the rough timetable the idea of responsibility and all these different things and it sort of puts them in this little box that's sort of excluded from the real world so it's like a smaller scale tuned down version of that in which it's the same games of social hierarchy and the same game theory applies but it's just on a smaller scale and it's more quarantined from the rest of the world. But yeah, then people leave university and all of a sudden it's like you go from your world being this little space to your world being this big space. You become much smaller in the face of that, I think. For me, I noticed that uh, that smallness quite strongly. And I realized as well that this thing called life wasn't as simple as just doing as you're told. Because at the end of the day, when you're doing as you're told, which you are doing at school, you're doing it, that's fine, but it will work so long as people are telling you to do things and people want things from you. But if you don't have anything to offer and people are busy with other stuff, nobody's going to tell you to do anything. And so all of a sudden you have to decide for yourself. And when you make judgment decisions like that about action, I think you invoke a hierarchy of values in your head when you are running through different options of what do you, what do you value? And that helps inform how you navigate the landscape of life. So at that time I was 13, I didn't really have that strong hierarchy of values that you develop as you grow through life. But I did have one main value 
I've had since I can remember, which is a freedom. So when I left school, I wrote this 22-page document to my family, basically explaining the pros and cons of where I should and why I shouldn't. And Nathan asked for it the other day, so I was looking through and I found it and I was reading it. But it was brilliant to see like an insight into myself back then, because that was like the document that changed the course of my life. And to read it for the first time after so many years, it was like, holy shit. To be honest, it sounded like it was written by a Bitcoiner. That there was a lot of like freedom talk and all of this stuff. And that's just an element of my nature that I just have immense value for freedom. So there was that period of, of yeah, I guess, post-university syndrome, except I was much younger. But luckily I had the internet and a lot of really wise old men to teach me what to do, basically. The sages and stuff on YouTube. And there's a plethora of them, an infinite amount. So I had so much good information and good advice for the first time because I wasn't spending my time you know just being told what to do I was listening to people who were telling me to actually think and to think about how to think and not to just make a plan but to think about how to make a plan and sort of reframing the education in a sense that it was no longer teaching me what to think but how to think and that switch helped me sort of I think shift a couple of the puzzle pieces in my mind if you will to eventually arrive at the conclusion of which is funnily enough is the conclusion I've had since then and if you were to ask me what my dreams are this would be it which is to have freedom in location time and money I figured that those three things would be the biggest hindrances on freedom and that the best life if I could picture a utopian life a utopian daydream existence then it would be one in which I had freedom in location time and money because the idea then was I could follow interests that I liked when I liked them and it was obviously the type of thing that a 13 year old would come up with because it's very brilliant and it doesn't hint on any of the <clears throat> it doesn't hit on any of the responsibility or duty a aspects of life it's very focused on the freedom aspects which is as a 13 year old what I was focused on I didn't understand really the value of responsibility or duty or anything like that but that was basically what I came up with as my goal so then it was just a matter of trying to reverse engineer a life that offered those and I'm still trying to today and it'll be a process and until well until I find something else to do with, with my time or my values change but, but yeah I think that's always been sort of the goal and it's funny to, to watch myself get older in a way because like, like I said that is purely almost to have those freedoms is very beneficial to me but not to the world and that was I think as a really young guy that's sort of what you come up with is something a dream life that's very beneficial to you but not necessarily to the world and as I've got older that starts to shift and you want to do more things for the world and actually rather than you know I remember when I was younger I used to think that like I want to be happy but now I feel like I want to be useful and that's a big switch that I think happens in a lot of people's lives as they grow into adulthood which is hard to understand as a kid because you're like why would you want to be useful and then some stuff happens and you have some life thrown at you and you drink some other sweet nectar of life and you go yeah maybe it'd be good if we had more useful people and happiness maybe isn't something that you can just get it's not the state mm -hmm. that you can just arrive at and be like oh gee golly i've arrived this is great i'm happy forever now and that would just become the new baseline and it would stop being happiness you just it would be sort of a flat existence then so yeah i think there was a lot of fundamental changes over the ensuing years about what i valued and what I believe um I guess I was developing that value hierarchy that I was talking about um but one thing that's been consistent through it all is the bitcoin stuff because 
if there's anything that can give you freedom in location, time, and money, it's Bitcoin. Right. In terms of actual technology. So it's kind of, I've only just noticed now actually how that actually speaks to the product itself, which is quite interesting. But well, you just so happened to be 13 years old at the time in your life where you decided to homeschool, interested in freedom of time, money, and location, and along comes across Bitcoin. I mean, it's, it's, divine timing in some ways like you could never mm. have imagined that that would happen um, and let's segue into that so what's bitcoin taught you and what are some of your favorite areas of it i would slightly break down what you just described so you know you think back to school and it's like you've got the timetable you've got to turn up on time you've got to be in your right clothes you've got to be quiet you've got to not piss anyone off you've got to pass a test very very micro whereas freedom of time money and location is a very macro way of thinking and it's completely juxtaposed and so it's interesting so when you came across bitcoin what you must have gone holy shit what is this stuff or maybe you dismissed it I, i'm not sure so let, let's go to that moment then so dad cheers the heads up i'm going to dive on in what what did it teach you um i think yeah there was there was never really a dismissal i, I don't really have when it comes to like ideas and stuff i don't really have a dismissive bone in my body i'm very drawn to ideas and exploring them and learning more about them and stuff and bitcoin to me seemed like an idea and so i was quite interested in it and especially if it's a thing in reality that people built it must serve some purpose right and if people are interested in it then it must be doing well at that purpose so that was kind of like i think the hook and then as i was learning more about it it was just like a long period of time of, i don't know what the fuck i'm reading about to be honest like this is just confusing i thought we already had money why are they making more money how can you even make money? And boy, I have some learning in store for myself there when it comes to actually quantitative easing and the money printer. But yeah, I remember thinking about Bitcoin. How can you just make money? That doesn't make any sense. And so there was, I think, that period of like trying to first go into understanding um, how it worked. I thought if I understood how it worked, I'd understand what it is. I couldn't understand how it worked for the life of me. I wasn't looking at the right <laughs> resources and it was just troublesome in that sense. But then I started reading this book series called the uncle eric series by a guy called richard mabry and i think that sort of started getting me interested in the greater puzzle picture into which bitcoin is a piece and sort of the outside of bitcoin how does bitcoin fit into the rest of it and so i was looking at the rest of it business and economics and politics and how they work together and how this whole world thing works and trying to get a rough understanding of it and then i heard about uh they can print money and i was like wait hold on i thought i was confused about bitcoin because i didn't un understand how you could just make money and then now you're telling me that the money that i've been using my whole life is just printed like they just decide when they want to make it and in my head i was like that just doesn't make sense there's just something very fundamental about that that i think prior to any learning of economics or any money there was just like a a sort of common sense understanding that that made no sense. You can't just create value without creating actual value. Like you can't create value by creating claims on value. And money is clearly a claim on value because you say, I claim to have five pounds worth of value, give me an ice cream. That's about two pounds worth of value. Okay, then I need three pounds worth of claims on value back. And then they say, oh yeah, so you, they actually just print it like all the time. They just make more of it and it's just numbers on a computer they just add the zeros and click enter and blah, blah, blah. and obviously it's a bit different than that but that's sort of how it's 
Not really. Oh, <laughs> not overly really different now. Um, but yeah, the actual logistics might change a bit. But in effect, that's what's happening. And it's sort of just like, God, you're telling me this thing that I've seen my family work for my whole life growing up, that I've seen everybody else work for so much, and that I see people on the internet showing off to each other about how they have so much of it. They're actually just flexing an item that somebody just went, exists now and i was like huh to me that seems almost like i'm trying to think of a way to explain this but it almost seems like a peasants are running around dancing and happy and explaining how much of these king's clothes they've been given the king is just there laughing just chucking wags into a pile that he found on the street and be like well, I touched it now, so it's King's clothes, and everyone's so happy that they've got some of it, and they're all showing off to each other and developing these hierarchies based on it about you know who's above who, and it's all because of this one thing, which to the person that's at the top is just nothing. It doesn't even matter. So it was like there's a huge disconnect there, and that was sort of how I remember feeling about it. And then as I yeah looked into it more, it was sort of just holy shit something seems broken. The idea is that Bitcoin might offer a solution. Let's figure out how Bitcoin works now. And then I started to put the puzzle pieces together of Bitcoin and figure out how Bitcoin works. And I think from how Bitcoin works derived exactly what it was and what it was trying to achieve, because at every level of Bitcoin's engineering is its purpose. You can't take an aspect of the code or of the protocol or of the white paper or of any of it and explain it without in being able to then infer some of the purpose of Bitcoin or the intention behind it. So yeah, there was, in, in the sense of what it actually taught me about the world, I think it, it brought my attention to money and asking what it actually is and what purpose is it serving. And then uh, you can go into the whole, what does it teach you about life and all the bigger questions and stuff, which I think is true because like, you know, you, you look at value differently after Bitcoin. I think a lot of people have the experience where they get into Bitcoin and something about themselves actually changes. And I think this is something that you can't avoid because when money is like the language of value, if you have a inherently fiat based, which is by decree, language of value, then that's going to filter through to how people experience their lives and the type of decisions that they're making, especially if it creates a high time preference situation. People are going to be less worried about planning there's a quote that says, the world gets better when old men plant trees, the shade of which they know they'll never sit. And if you don't have a world where that's happening, the people change. And the same if you have Bitcoin and where these values are in Bitcoin, it sort of teaches you, I think, about what you value in a sense then too. Something that really struck me just listening to you talking then is this, this idea of context. So, you know, I, I was the same, right? I, I read the white paper for the first time and I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? You know, I, I didn't understand. And, you know, I had similar experiences when I sat in a classroom, whether that be my university degree, doing business management as a 21-year-old or, you know, going further back, A-levels, GCSEs at school specifically. And you're in these kind of, you know, role play scenarios or whatever. And it just, it's, this is bullshit. Like, what do we, what does it even mean? I, I, this has no meaning whatsoever. And what you just 
brilliantly articulated is actually like once the context for the problem comes in, which is like, how do we communicate value between people in a way that is fairer, basically, or what's what's the optimal way of doing it? You know, let's throw that open for discussion. It's fucking epic. The decisions that you took to say, right, that doesn't work for me. And then how your brain has evolved to actually then reapply what was a much more natural kind of problem solving process as I see it. It's really, really cool. And so, you know, did you start talking to your friends about this or your family? And did you find that they were receptive to this conversation? And, you know, in some ways it's pretty brutal when you go, hang on. So I'm running around making money that gets taxed absolutely everywhere. And still I get fucked because the money's disintegrating in value as well. And that's arguably even more expensive than all the tax that I pay. What the hell's going on? We're being completely cheated. And it, some people just don't want to know. Do you know what I mean? It's just much easier not to go there. So what were some of those earlier conversations like? People were probably like, hang on, mate, you're 15. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was like that. So I think when I was first interested in it, maybe like 14, there was a couple of conversations with friends and they were asking what I was up to now and stuff. And I tried to explain Bitcoin. I was quite excited about it. So I tried a little bit and then never has there been more disastrous conversations. So I stopped doing that. And still to this day, my friends from back home, when, when they ask like, what's going on like with the Bitcoin thing, I kind of just don't engage the conversation too much because it's, it's a long conversation and people want to have it in two minutes just while they're getting ready to leave the house or something. And it's like, it's, you can't, it'll just leave you with more questions. And with the family, I, you know, I spoke to my mom about it and my dad was obviously began learning about it as he saw Theo and I were getting like, Theo and I felt like we were finding a pot of gold. And so that excited dad and he started trying to learn about it as well. So he was always an, into it too. And he's still a considering a Bitcoiner today. And yeah, mum's got high street, high street shop. So she's still working 24 seven pretty much to keep that running and uh, hasn't had the, the, the time to look into it as much yet, but is open to the idea still. And, and yeah, it's uh, when it comes to friends and stuff, it was, I think with the age situation as well, it was like, Obviously, when I was 15, all my friends were 15 as well. So the conversations around money and stuff were just, I think, laughable at that point mm -hmm. in time. It's just like, what do you mean? What's money? It's this. Can you not see it? And it's like, yeah, but that's not really what I'm saying. And Well, Andrew, I'd love to just jump in at that point because I, I actually haven't had the chance to ask anyone of your age what that's like. So you're already kind of touching on it, but most of the people I speak to are between the age of kind of 30 and 60 rather than, you know, 15 and 20. And I can imagine that somehow that, you know, you download a Coinbase account or Binance and everyone's talking about different fucking cryptos that are going to go to the moon. And what, you know, what are you guys chatting about when you're in your teenage years and you come across a subject like this? Well, I think it probably was just around 2020 when I started to notice some of the people in the school that I grew up in and in those social circles started to get interested in crypto. It was always crypto. There's never really much of an interest in Bitcoin and in my age group. I think that's because it's naturally crypto is the uh, fun and exciting shiny siren at the beginning. And then you sort of see through the facade later on. But yeah, I think earlier, earlier on, there was never really any interest from my peers about Bitcoin or crypto. 
So I can't really speak to much about what they would speak about at that point in time. It wasn't crypto and it wasn't money and stuff like that. But over the past couple of years, as I've seen more people get interested in it, unfortunately, there is that that lens, that crypto lens that it's looked at from, which is that Bitcoin is, you know, Facebook or Bitcoin is MySpace and altcoins and stuff like Facebook. And there's a lot of that. I think the it is naturally going to happen when you have a market in which I guess I'd say false competitors have marketing budgets, but the actual original innovation doesn't have one mm-hmm. at all. It's like that's going to create a massive offset in what information gets to people first and how well it's transmitted and how many pretty 3D graphics you've got on the white paper and all of this, which does unfortunately play a huge part in, I think, how the project is perceived. Bitcoin is just this Bitcoin logo. And meanwhile, you've got all these other cryptocurrencies that are just like developing all sorts of fancy renders and graphic design and and they've got all this fancy terminology for their networks which sort of shrouds it in a cloud of mystery um so people go to to crypto and when they talk about it they get the basic premise though which is interesting they always get the lack of a middleman idea they always like the fact that there's no middleman and they sort of grasp onto that and they apply that to crypto in whole and they go Oh, this is amazing. And then they'll talk about their like, you know, what, whatever it may be, their new token where it's like uh, tickets or whatever it is, but it's on the blockchain. And it's like, why is it good? And they're like, oh, because it's on the blockchain. You know, there's no there's no intermediary. And you're like, yeah, but why do you need that for that purpose? And it's sort of that conversation, I think, is something that people become ready for later down the line. But the fact that they grasp the premise of like, hold on, like if I want to, trade with another party there's nobody standing in between us tearing an edge off the notes every time it goes between us and looking at exactly what we're doing and keeping track of it and could potentially halt it and so they get the freedom aspect of it from the beginning and i think it's quite intuitive to most people there's a lot of marketing material out there for crypto it's tough that one yeah bitcoin not crypto it's it's a huge conversation you're right and the incentive model is just so fucked everywhere you look i mean take some of the the crypto media businesses that exist like they get paid big bucks by crypto marketing departments to promote them on a podcast write articles about them and it all fits so nicely together everyone's making a ton of money and it's the 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 retail investor on the street that is ill-informed as to what's going on and yes it might be peer-to-peer which is great so there's no middleman but what they don't realize is that there's a designer somewhere that's got the keys to the castle and that can change things at the drop of a hat as and when they so choose before we go down that hole too much i'd love to just steer us towards becoming an author so when did you decide to write a book so the book was offered to me uh back when i was 16 originally but at that point in time i still wasn't overly confident in my understanding of the whole mm-hmm. thing which proved to be a good intuition because I was still quite enthralled in crypto at that point in time. And so I think luckily I listened to my gut on that one and said, you know, I, I, I'm really enthusiastic about the premise and the freedom aspect of it, but I don't fully understand the tech enough to feel like I'm capable of writing a book on it. And then from 16 to like 19 or was it actually 18? Yeah, from 16 to 18, there was a lot of learning. And obviously my brain had developed a bit more from when I was 13, so I was able to actually understand some of these concepts I was learning about and the process became easier. And so then I was 
much more on the Bitcoin side of things and had had a lot of those penny drop moments. And I basically called them up and said, hey, is that offer for the book still there after like a few years? And they were like, yeah, sure. So in August of 2021, I was like, shit, I guess I'm writing a book now. This sounded cool in theory. Now I've got to do it. Holy shit, I have three months to turn over a whole book. Right, <laughs> let's go, let's do it. I didn't have anything else on my schedule, so I just sort of spent three months just like, the first month was probably just figuring out mainly how I was going to write it, like what strategy I wanted to take in terms of how I wanted to present it, how much of the book should I dedicate to this topic and that topic and that topic, and just sort of planning the writing process. And then the actual writing of it was the rest of it, uh, another two months. And then last year, it was published in October, so 2022, October. And it was it was weird. It was sort of like um, probably the single best learning experience when it comes to Bitcoin that I've had, because it was taking a lot of the ideas that I had learned about and that sort of drifted to the back of my mind and bringing them all to the front. And it's like pure computers, bringing it all into your RAM, your random access memory, and just like there, it's, it's all on the desktop and you've got to see it and find the holes in it and articulate it and come up with the most accurate picture that you can. And also trying to do it with the use of a lot of analogy and metaphor, because, you know, I think a lot of my motivation originally to actually write the book was I was noticing that because Bitcoin is an idea, if we want the idea to have legs, well, we've got to put it in people's heads. And so to actually put it in people's heads, they got to kind of wrap their heads around it a bit, which is not easy. So I figured that might be a threat to Bitcoin um, and it's Bitcoin achieving what it wants to achieve. So I thought if I could play a part in helping people understand it, that would be sort of great. That's something I'd like to be useful in doing. How do I do that? Well, there's a lot of newbies and I've spent a few years going around, like mainly in London and stuff, just helping people get into Bitcoin and setting them up with hardware wallets. And a lot of these people were like quite well off in real estate and stuff in London. Um, they're in the middle-aged men usually who have done quite well in property or something. And I was helping them basically get involved. And I was noticing with them, a lot of the hangups was around the terminology and the lingo, just as a lot of my hangups when I'd ask them about their line of work was around terminology and lingo. So there'd be a lot of times where I'd try and explain something and they wouldn't get it. And then I would rephrase it using the language of the actual line of profession that they work in. And they would be like, oh, I get it. Oh, so Bitcoin's digital property. Oh, and it would, all, it would just click so quickly. And I was like, holy shit. As a group of educators in Bitcoin, we've just been focused entirely on, you know, getting people up to speed with the terminology and everything before we even like make sure that they have a formulation in the head of what it is, how it works. And to get that formulation, basically words are not the, the meaning themselves, words evoke meaning. And so if you are using words that people haven't heard before, it won't evoke any meaning. And so you'll get lost in a conversation where you've mentioned the mining three times, you've mentioned proof of work once, and you briefly mentioned SHA-256 and hashes. <laughs> people, and you think like, oh, but I was like a five-minute Let's talk about the football. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and so you'll give someone a five-minute monologue of this, and they'll think, oh, I only mentioned those things like twice. That's so like three words out of 500. It was fine. But just by missing those couple words, the most important bits of what you're saying are completely left out. You're not evoking any understanding or any mental models in their head, so they can't formulate a picture. So I thought if I could try and explain it 
without using any of the terminology, using strictly mental models that people have already formulated, how people work, about incentives, which people understand already, and, and all of this, then I could try and explain Bitcoin by what ended up being essentially an analogy that didn't even mention computers. Because people, I think most newbies, especially in the middle age demographic, they get stuck at the computer bit because every time you mention anything, even if they do get it, they worry that they don't get it because there's so much they know they don't understand about computers that you mention mm-hmm. something. They go, I think I understand what you mean. But then again, I thought I understood computers before and I was always so wrong. And so I'm probably wrong here. And there's just this, it's this black box that I don't want to even go to because there's just so much about it that I don't get. So instead of doing all that computery shit, I tried to explain it with an analogy of essentially villagers that have lost their memories, which sounds incredibly weird, but I promise it kind of does make well, sense. No, this is, I was going to ask specifically on that. So you're, well, first of all, when I read the book, I've read a ton of Bitcoin books and I really felt like I'd learned something that I hadn't learned before, which is cool because oh. a lot of it sounds, a lot of it can start to sound very similar, right? So what I love is when people take their own lens. And that's why I like to talk about people's personal journeys. It's like, we all feel and know that Bitcoin's interesting, but what did you know beforehand that meant that you realized that? And I can actually associate with the fact that you were interested in freedom and that whole idea of owning your time, your money and your location. Well, that's actually really interesting lens to look at life on. And I really associate with that. And you've decided Bitcoin's a good idea. Okay, well, that then is like almost a metaphor for why I like Bitcoin. So yeah, you, you talk about villages and you explain consensus extremely well. So let's just dive into that one specific example as to how you translate that to someone who doesn't understand about, you know, you mentioned the word blockchain and they'd be like, ooh, you know, I don't want to go near that. Yeah, so there's a section in the book, which is basically, I tried to smuggle how Bitcoin works into the book before explicitly stating that I was talking about how Bitcoin works. And I think people understand, you know, he's probably talking about Bitcoin here, but The idea was that I wasn't going to use any Bitcoin words and I was going to explain how Bitcoin works or at least consensus, which is the, I think the fundamental, most basic principle that people need to understand if they want to understand Bitcoin. So I tried to explain that using this metaphor of analogy or allegory, or not sure which it is, but basically a segment about a bunch of villagers that have all lost their memories or woken up one day with amnesia and they following through as like a thought experiment, how they would go about keeping track of the flow of goods and services and the state and chain of ownership of claims on those services. And the idea was that, without going too into detail, basically they used to have money, gold. They woke up with amnesia and somebody's taken all their gold, but they didn't even remember that they had gold. So they find these filing cabinets and they look through it and it's got essentially a big ledger with all these papers stacked up and on each paper is like a new day of all of the transactions of gold that happened that day um, or of cu- currency, I can't remember which one it was, but basically they were writing down before they lost their memories, all their transactions. So upon waking up and all the gold has gone and all of the actual physical money has gone, so they've got no memory that it ever even existed or of the concept, they find this writing and they assume, oh, this must be how we were keeping track. And so they formulate a system to basically ensure that they can all agree on a way to make entries to that ledger and transact with each other by just writing to this piece of paper i'm giving john to whatever i think i called them socks or something but the idea was 
that naturally you'll encounter a lot of problems if you're just in a community or a village and you're trying to use written notes to a piece of paper as your money because you know who gets to write it to the paper what if somebody writes something to it and somebody else didn't see or if somebody erases one of them so the idea was them trying to figure out how to formulate a system in which they can all make entries to the ledger without having to rely strictly on trust of a specific party or to have a middleman or a centralized authority and so they developed this system and then i run through how it's working and so basically the protocols that they've put in place in order to make that happen and when it comes to actually the bitcoin protocol bit i basically just copy and paste that entire section and just replace some of the words so i replace some music villages with nodes and the the rubik's cube race with the hashing algorithm and I just replace some of the words and then that serves as an explanation of the actual protocol so hopefully people that don't have any computer information and that come from it from completely blank knowledge can read through that and get a sense of, oh, I kind of get how this is working and how they've made this work. And then you just switch out some of the people for some computers, essentially. And that's literally Bitcoin then. And hopefully that will help some people that don't have any preliminary understanding or the technology or find the topic confusing to them. Um, hopefully it will help them kind of understand the logic behind it when you get the logic behind it that's sort of the essence of it because it's all logic it's code so if you can get the logic of how the consensus works i think you can understand the importance of the entire innovation it somehow brings through this idea of how important it is as a building block for society even though obviously a village is a very simple hierarchy that we can think of very easily but um the fact that bitcoin has been invented is incredibly profound for how we do commerce and it's going to change things forever just very few people have actually figured that out yet and for someone like myself that spent you know hundreds of hours studying it the way that you explained it was a unique and b really helpful so it did what it was supposed to do angela i'm going to just ask one question which to be honest is unfair because it's your own question but how come you have calves that are so much bigger than bitcoin theos it's just because I, I think i'm you know, the first pancake is always worse than the second one. Well, Theo's my older brother and he's uh, the first pancake. So, you know, they got it right the second time, but the first time it was a struggle. <laughs> he's trying. Right. Mate, a healthy bit of competition. Good stuff. Well, Angelo, thanks so much for your time today. If people want to reach out and get in touch, how do they do that? Uh, so I'm on Twitter at Angelo underscore Summers, spelled S-O-M-E-R-S. And that's about it. Yeah, yeah. perfect. Well, Angela, thanks so much for telling us your story. Really awesome work, and I can't wait to see what you produce in the future. So thank you. Thanks, mate. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Okay, friends. Nice work. You made it all the way to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this conversation. As I said at the start, if you have any questions, then please don't hesitate to reach out. And if you enjoyed the episode, then please rate, like, subscribe, and share. That's it for now. Enjoy the rest of your day. All the best, Jake.